I'm Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed and host of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast. I am thrilled to invite you to attend my free virtual training on how to create your ultimate annual fundraising plan to raise more money. If you're frustrated that your current fundraising plan is not getting results you need, if you're charged with raising even more money during challenging times and with fewer resources, if you find yourself hampered by working with an inaccurate donor database and you're not sure where to start or how to create a custom, bold, data-informed fundraising plan that can help you raise more money, then this training, it was made for you. In this training, you will learn my proven framework for developing a data-informed, donor-centric annual fundraising plan. You'll learn how to strengthen your fundraising foundation, meaning annual fund, major gifts, planned giving, how to determine what is working and could be scaled in your fundraising program, and how to determine what's not working and should be reimagined or retired immediately. What new and bold thinking strategies and tools you can use to enhance your fundraising plan. Plus, when you stay till the end, you get my fundraising plan guide absolutely free. If you need help with creating your ultimate annual fundraising plan to raise more money, then I would love to help you. It'll only cost you an hour of your time. We will reap capacity. Visit fundraisingtransform.com forward slash training and claim your free spot now. If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management and online fundraising software that helps small to medium nonprofits, just like First Tee of Greater Akron, a nonprofit that empowers kids and teens through the game of golf. After just one year with Bloomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear how they did it or visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional to learn more. Again, that's bloomerang.com forward slash intentional. I'm beyond thrilled to be talking with Seth Godin today. He's a man who really needs no introduction, but by the way of acknowledgement, I'll briefly say he's a best-selling author, speaker, entrepreneur, and most of all, a teacher. In addition to launching one of the most popular blogs in the world, which I read every single morning, he has written 20 best-selling books, including The Dip, Lynchpin, Purple Cow, one of my favorites, Tribes, and What to Do When It's Your Turn, and It's Always Your Turn. This is Marketing, became an instant bestseller all around the world, and The Practice, which creatives everywhere have also made a bestseller. And now, a new book, 
to be released in late May. Seth has written a book titled The Song of Significance, A New Manifesto for Teams. It's a management book that's not about management at all. It's really about leadership. Leadership from people traditionally seen as powerful, like your C-suite, but more than that, leadership distributed across our organizations. And in this moment of great resignation and quiet quitting, rebirth and reimagining work, Seth says it's possible to see the fork in the road and either we race to the bottom to make work more soul-sucking, and many of us have experienced that, or we choose significance instead. And he dares to ask the question, what would happen if this became the best job you ever had? Seth, this is juicy. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for that nice introduction. And thanks for the work you do. Many people don't know my dad was a volunteer head of the United Way in Buffalo when I was growing up. My mom was on the board of trustees of the art museum. So I thought it was normal to do the kind of community-focused work of creating possibility that I've discovered isn't really that normal. And showing up for people who do this hard work is really important to me. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, it's my pleasure. And we're grateful that your parents raised you in that environment and that you're contributing in such a significant way. If you would, just start by telling us kind of the inspiration or the origin story of the new book, The Song of Significance. There's a lot of stories about bees in the book. And we're not bees, but bees can help us understand how we think and how our lives work. And if we juxtapose that with chat GPT and artificial intelligence and the brutality of billionaires bossing people around and layoffs and ennui and all the other stuff that's going on in our world at the very same time that more of us have more tools to create more magic than ever before, there really is a fork in the road. And when you see a fork, you should take it. Uh, in my case, when I heard about the bees, when I learned about how they organize without an organizer, lead without a leader, create teams that produce value without denigrating or disrespecting any member of the hive, it's possible to see what we can make. And I spent the last year as a volunteer full-time building the Carbon Almanac with 300 other people. Now it's 1,900 people. And what I learned there is that you can take a whole bunch of people who are not authorized, who are not trained, and build something really important. We built a book that was a bestseller around the world, won a worldwide award for design. And we handed in that 97,000 word almanac, designed, layout, typeset, fact-checked, footnoted, without one significant error after five months ahead of schedule and under budget. So Incredible. this can be done, but we have to decide we want to do it. Mm. The nonprofit sector is facing some pretty serious workforce crisis. There's a well-documented shortage of fundraising professionals and due to burnout and self-reported feelings of really feeling unappreciated. So we're acting completely the opposite of bees, right? Mm -hmm. We're not working together. We're not respecting one another. We're not as inclusive as we need to be. And as a result, some are leaving the profession entirely. Others are leaving for other organizations thinking that the grass is greener. And then sometimes coming back because it's not so much greener at all. <laughs> and really, I find it pretty heartbreaking because I know people join the nonprofit sector 
because they want to make a difference. They want to change the world. And I honestly believe that the Song of Significance can help us solve this problem. So tell us why do we need significance and what can its role be in reimagining work and meaningfully engaging people and teams? So I want to start with a small rant about the story we tell ourselves as nonprofit fundraisers. Rant away. If, if you believe that your job is to beg powerful people for money, I'm amazed you don't burn out after four days. And last year, Americans gave $320 billion to nonprofits as individuals. And unfortunately, a lot of that was status role posturing by people in power demanding that hardworking fundraising people lick their boots and dance around. And this is an error. It's an error because if someone donates $4 million to have their name put on a dorm at some university, it's only happening because it's worth $5 million to them. Mm. Nobody engages in a transaction to support a nonprofit unless they think it's a bargain. That when you give somebody the chance to donate $1,000 because their great aunt died of cancer, this $1,000 is a testament to who they were and what they stood for. They will only do that if it's worth $2,000 to them, which means that everything you are, quote, selling is on sale, that everything you are offering to people is an opportunity. You are not getting people to make donations because social pressure from you is somehow this painful thing you're inflicting on them that what it means to be a great fundraiser is to open the door to help people get to where they wanted to go all along. If somebody has savings in the bank, at some point they have enough. What's the next thing they're buying for? What's it for? A $100 bottle of wine doesn't solve your I need some alcohol problem. You can solve that for $5. So what's the other $95 for? Well, the same thing is true when a fundraiser for a nonprofit shows up. It's a chance to be missed if you're gone, to create value for people who need you. And so where significance lies is not in saying, I am just cranking my way through this spamming for dollars, but in exactly the opposite direction, to say, as a human, I am here as a Sherpa, as a scout, as a guide. And if I wasn't here, that person wouldn't be able to find the meaning that I am able to offer them. And if you can't see it that way, there's nothing we can change about the industry that will make the industry better for you. Mm, that's a beautiful context. And you're right. There has been a very unhealthy power dynamic in so much of philanthropy. And the most loyal, the donors, the ones that stay with us for the duration, who give more when they have more, who really help us move the needle, are those who are looking for an opportunity to unleash their generosity, to make the biggest difference. And quite frankly, they've been some of the more humble people that I've met as I've worked with donors over my 20-plus career in fundraising. That's a beautiful context. So tell us more about why we need significance. So when I surveyed 10,000 people in 90 countries. I said, here's 14 things that people might mention. You got paid a lot. You didn't have to work very hard. No one told you what to do. Of these 14 things, think about the best job you ever had and tell me which ones showed up. 
And in fact, the same four or five things showed up over and over again. Almost no one picked, I got paid a lot and didn't have to work very hard. What people picked were, I achieved more than I thought I could. People treated me with respect. I was able to work with people I was proud of and I made a difference. Well, where is a better place to do that than in your industry, Tammy? And what we do instead is rely on the indoctrination that starts when someone is five years old of, will this be on the test? What are the operative measures? How can I take attendance? Oh, you want to work from home? Well, you better be on Zoom calls all day so I can make sure you're not out getting the dry cleaning and on and on and on. And so we push people to be automatons which makes it the worst job they ever had. Well, in fact, when someone feels like it's the best job they ever had, they don't seek to work less. They choose to work more. They don't seek to make less of a contribution. They have decided they can make more. Right. So I don't have to write books to feed my family. In fact, it's a really stupid way to feed my family. <laughs> I write books because it makes me feel like the better version of me. And so that's how the books get produced, not because my publisher is sitting there with a stopwatch saying, how many words did you write today? And so when we think about how do we help our donors become who they want to be, the change they seek to make, well, then suddenly my job as a fundraiser starts to feel better as well. I love that. And it's so true. I mean, even more of the research coming from Dr. Jen Shang at the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy talks about how giving is really an expression of identity, and that's what you're so affirming. Let's apply that. Let's talk about nonprofit organizations, many of them, who historically have been kind of a command and control, top-down management versus an organization that is significance-driven, purpose-driven, empowering, and inspiring its teams. How do we create conditions where teams can make the impact they desire? Okay, so let's understand a couple of things. The work that a typical nonprofit does is important, urgent, irreplaceable, human, essential, cannot be diminished. With that said, the typical way that a nonprofit shows up in the world is a riff on the National Lampoon magazine cover from 1972, which was a picture of a dog and a gun pointed to the dog's head and it said, buy this magazine or we'll shoot this dog. Mm. And they were making a really poignant comment about the way some kind of marketing works. So when we say to our staff or when we say to a donor, send us money or this poor kid is going to die. Well, yeah, except no, because there's probably a more efficient way for someone out there to not die than your charity, that I can save a life from river blindness or malaria cheaper than I can save a life by sending money to you. So that's not what we're having here is a contest of features and benefit. What we're saying is status and affiliation are the narrators of our life. Affiliation, who's to your left, who's to your right? How do you fit in? And status, who's up and who's down? Where is somebody who is leading? So both my parents passed away a while ago, but in my mom's case, the museum in Buffalo was cutting edge for decades. Clifford Still, Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol, all very important pieces of work. 
But a whole generation came along that didn't really care because that's not what was important to them because it wasn't cutting edge anymore. These were impressionists and modernists and stuff. So what the museum figured out is that if on Thursday nights they turn the place over to a new generation of people to have more of a cocktail party experience where you noticed who was in the room and you noticed who didn't, the paintings became a souvenir of that experience. They weren't the point. And suddenly a whole new generation of people got involved because they didn't insist that they had the right answer. And through the ages, it was always the correct answer. They said, what do the people we serve need? Mm-hmm. And how do we open the door to help them get there? You know, the number of symphony orchestras in the United States is plummeting for a really good reason, which is that in the days of Beethoven and Mozart, the only time you heard a piece of classical music was the one time you went to hear it live. Now, yeah. we don't have that problem because I can listen to any song I want anytime I want. So why am I even going to this building, this inconvenient, expensive transaction? Well, if you're not going to offer me affiliation and status, if you're not going to offer it to my staff, if you're not going to offer it to the institution, people are going to say, you know what? I can live without that because I can listen to Beethoven at home. Mm -hmm. So what nonprofits do when they're doing their job right, they make a change happen. And the people on the fundraising side are as generous as the people on the program side. You're just changing someone else. Instead of changing that poor kid in the oncology wing, you are changing a privileged member of the industrial class who finally can find some meaning simply by writing a check. But if you can't create the conditions for status and affiliation to kick in, you can't make them change for the better. And therefore, you're stealing from them by not opening the door for them to get to where they want. And then it truly is transactional versus relational and that exchange of shared values as they define them. Right to your point, the younger generation really longing for belonging and that, again, connection. So when we look at how to harness the power of connection and significance inside the nonprofit organization, certainly with donors, but applying that same principle to retaining staff, attracting staff, whether they're on the programmatic side or whether they're on the fundraising side or some other area of administration, which maybe doesn't necessarily feel the impact on a day-to-day basis, really that belonging and that radical connection, if you will, is one of the tools in our toolbox to do just that. Yeah. And so it's very important that we don't get hung up on class when we talk about this, that it is possible to have a job as a barista or as a custodian where you every day feel meaning and connection in your work, that the jobs where that is getting sucked out aren't necessarily low-paying jobs. They're jobs that are easy to mechanize. And if you treat that person who's a barista as every step is programmed, well, then you are treating them like a mini version of a computer. Every few years, I have to buy a couple more uniforms for some of the work that I do. And the woman who I interact with, who I've never met in person, knows who I am five years later, interacts with me in a way with warmth and generosity that makes me never shop around when it's time for me to get another order. And part of it is 
she understands this makes her company more money. But I think a bigger part of it is it's a better day for her. Hmm. And when I compare that to the person who was at the doctor's office, she's saving people's lives by getting people into the right doctor. But the crankiness that she brought to the work was a direct result of being treated like a cog in a machine. And if you feel like you're a cog in the machine and you don't feel like your humanity is being needed, well, then why should we be surprised if you act up? Yeah. So part of it is certainly mindset and how you view your role, your purpose in the organization. And I suspect part of it is environment. So you talk a bit about the commitments that bosses need to make and the commitments that workers need to make. Can you elaborate on that? So culture defeats strategy every time. It doesn't matter how brilliant your strategy is, how important your cause is, how good you personally are at the work that brought you to this nonprofit space. What is it like around here? Culture is the simple answer to the question, what's it like around here? And every organization has a different culture on purpose. Even if you don't do it on purpose, the fact that you chose not to do it on purpose is still a choice. And so when we think about the culture of criticize the work, not the worker, create page 19 thinking where people show up to make it a little better, figure out how to build an environment where no one is going to do the same job a year from now, where the learning keeps happening, where there is a sense not that, oh, well, this is a nonprofit, therefore we can't expect as much, but in fact, a sense of this is a nonprofit, therefore we're going to expect more. That the reason we gave you 5013C status is so that you would make a lot of mistakes. Because if we knew the answer to the problem, it wouldn't be a problem anymore. We would have solved it already. So when we build that kind of problem-solving studio, we're going to attract a different kind of person. When you adopt the attitude of, well, the work I'm doing is life and death, therefore I can treat people like jerks. Don't be surprised if that's what the culture becomes. Wow. When you said creating that problem-solving studio and taking risks, making mistakes, and I have found that in so many nonprofits, especially those who maybe have been around for a very long time, who are highly regulated, they become so focused on compliance and so adverse to taking any risks whatsoever to the point that they really truly do not embrace innovation or entrepreneurialism at all. What do you say to them? Well, I think the question is, what promise are you making to the people mm. around you? So I got invited by the American Heart Association to run a seminar with them. And they said, we'll pay you. I said, there's no way you can pay me for something like this, but you do have to come to my office because I'm not flying to tech. And a friend of mine is a well-known cardiologist and I asked if he could come along. So he was there. And I went through lots of the storytelling and marketing stuff. Now, the American Heart Association, what does it stand for to the typical donor? Well, what they say to the typical donor is, we're very sorry something bad happened to someone you care about. We are a safe, reliable, proven way for you to make a donation with no real interest required on your part so you can check it off and get back to your life. And I said, 
would you be interested in growing by being able to say to a different class of donor, we're actually going to solve heart disease? Because that's a different problem. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we're here for. I said, all right. So if I could tell you something that you could do tomorrow that would decrease heart disease by 20% in this country for free, would you do it? And they're like, well, that's why we're here. I said, so it's simple. All you have to do is mount a campaign, stick with it for a year. That Tuesday is no meat day in America. No meat at work, no meat at home. It's no meat Tuesday. Because if we eliminated beef from our diet one day out of seven, the number of people who would die from heart disease, here's my friend Jonathan, he's a cardiologist, he'll back me up, would go down by 20%. And they turned white as a sheet. And they said, well, we can't do that. I said, well, why can't you do that? They said, because the farmers will be mad at us and this partner will be mad at us. And that will make a change happen. And I said, so let's just be honest that you don't really want to make a significant shift in this. What you really want to do is be able to keep the promise you've been making for 50 years, which is without ruffling a lot of feathers, we're going to collect money that salve a wound, but we're not here to make a change happen. I said, that's cool. But just be clear with all the people around that you shouldn't be coming to meetings with people like me because that's not really what you want. <laughs> and so Manad Kosler wrote a book, I've stolen the title, called Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. And what I'm arguing in the book is that we need to say to the people we work for, the people we work with, and the people who work for us, why are we here? Let's get real. Let's get crystal clear about why we're here. Let's get real. Or let's not play because there's plenty of other things talented people can do all day other than working with us. So if you can be clear about the change you seek to make, if you can make it so that your donors can't wait to hear all the ways you failed on your way to solving a problem, then you won't be embarrassed when you fail anymore because you realize like a safe cracker, the only way to open the safe is to try a lot of numbers. So powerful. I mean, and I think that when you have that clarity and you pronounce a big, hairy, audacious goal, a real game changer, that people really do get excited about investing in that. And most of them have some experience of business and understand there are mistakes. As long as you're not repeating a mistake, you're learning from the mistakes. Those are like one, as you said, one step closer to the solution. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. First Tee of Greater Accra needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Here's Executive Director Josh Smith sharing what he likes about Bloomerang. We love Bloomerang because it's so, like, it's very user-friendly. We're able to do more because our daily tasks of thanking donors and sending thank you notes have been cut more than half because of Bloomerang. Year over year, we have raised more funds. So obviously, I think Bloomerang's been a huge part of that. By investing in a donor management system that they actually love using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so if we talk about my friend Scott, Charity Water has raised more than a quarter of a billion 
$5 in the last 15 years. And they have a long list of mistakes that they have made, and they will not hide them from you. And they have done extraordinary work in creating status and affiliation in the online space that was just left to them by the existing charities who were afraid yeah. of it. And they don't say the purpose of our website is to be a cash register that transacts. We're actually going to make a sense of meaning and possibility for people in the way they live today, which is online. And as a result, millions and millions of people aren't dead. Millions and millions of people have access to clean water because Scott Harrison has made a series of mistakes for 15 years. Mm. And that's what change looks like. Does every person who work at Charity Water, is everyone like that who has that attitude? Of course not. And it, again, if you're the American Heart Association, I'm applauding you. Thank you for offering people solace and connection. But if you really want things to get better, you got to sign up for this other path. Right. And if you choose that path, it's all in. Now, you also talk about the fact that some turnover is healthy, right? So if someone's not all in, they really should opt out. I think that embracing turnover, celebrating turnover is critical. No one worries about turnover, for example, in the bus business or the airplane business. If an airplane is going to Toledo and you really want to go to Philadelphia and you get off the plane, that's good. It's not bad. If you're on the plane the whole way whining that it's not going to Philadelphia, it's going to ruin the trip for everybody. Let's announce right on the front of the plane where it's going, you should only get on that plane. A colleague of mine had as one of their leading donors a billionaire. And the billionaire wanted a certain sort of relationship with the institution. And he said, that's not the kind of institution we're building. And that's not the kind of institution I can have with you. There are other people, other organizations that will do a better job with your money. Thank you. And with respect, sent yeah. them to support other people. If you're not willing to do that, then you don't really stand for anything. Then yeah. you're just saying, I'll take money from anybody, whatever it takes. Instead, say, this bus goes over there. And if you don't want to play that, we don't want your money. Thanks, though. And so that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to walk away from money that's really not in alignment with where you're going. It takes a lot of courage to really get clarity and throw your hat over the fence and say, we are going to do this. Who's with us? Talk to us about the characteristics of leaders who have that kind of courage. And when I say leaders, I mean people in high and wide inside the organization. So the magic here is this. I think courage belongs to people who are taking actual risks. Hmm. I think, you know, there's volunteer firemen in my town. I have so much respect for them. It takes courage to walk into a burning, smoking building. When I got offered the chance to write the Permission Marketing Handbook and then the sequel to Permission Marketing after my first bestseller, it did not take courage for me to say no thank you. Because the correct answer, if I wanted to build a career, was to make a new book about a new topic, not to do a safe sequel. That the courage required to say to someone who's offering you money with strings that say, and I get to be on your board haranguing you, and I get to wake you up in the middle of the night, and da da da. That's not courage. That's a smart. And so if you can create a culture where we get to criticize the work and not the worker. So, you know, when we were building the Carbon Almanac, 
the model was very simple, which is we said, here's what five great pages are going to look like. Go make a page. And if you brought back a page and it didn't match what we were trying to do, we would say, this is really great, but it doesn't belong in our book. Thank you very much. But this does belong in our book. Get us more of this. Well, suddenly the work became thrilling because there wasn't this constant mediocre compromise all the time of worrying about whether I'm going to hurt this person's feelings. Everyone needs to be happy. No. So one of my favorite stories about this is you may have heard of David Chang, the chef. And yeah. he's super famous now. He wasn't famous when he opened the very first Momofuku, which had only 30 seats. And on Saturdays, when my kids were younger, the four of us, my wife and our two kids, get in the car, drive the electric car 20 miles to the village in New York, get there at noon, right when they opened, and eat at the counter and have lunch. And it was delicious. And one of the things, I'm a vegetarian and have been for 40 years. One of the things on the menu is Brussels sprouts with bacon. And I would say to the person who was working the grill station, can I have the Brussels sprouts without the bacon, please? Because you come out ahead because you don't have to waste the bacon. And I come out ahead because it's delicious. And three or four weeks in a row, they made this for me. I'm pretty sure David was the person working behind the counter the fifth week. And he said, you know what? There's a vegetarian restaurant two doors down. And I get that you like what you like. But it would be better for you and better for us if we made what we want to make and you ate over there instead. Oh. And that was the day he became David Chang. Yeah. Because either you Clarity. stand for something or you don't. Yeah. Beautiful. What a great story. Really underscores that point. And that's the thing. I feel like there's such a scarcity mindset in the nonprofit world. Mm -hmm. We feel like we have to chase every pull that has a wallet. And that in and of itself is honestly disrespectful. It doesn't value the human and their Correct. purpose and their humanity. And honestly, it wastes a lot of our time. That's right. And I have another friend who runs a significant nonprofit. You're not going to be their assistant for more than a year. That we're not going to run at a pace that lets you want to do this for 30 years. We're going to sprint together. And then you're going to get an amazing letter of recommendation and the rest of your life is going to be even better. So if you don't want to sprint for a year, don't take this job. Yeah. But we're going to sprint because that's the pace that I run at. There's nothing wrong with saying that to somebody. And if that's not what they're looking for, they shouldn't work for you. Yeah. And so again, it comes back to clarity. Clarity of purpose and understanding your true culture of your organization and making that super clear in yeah. the interview process, even in the advertising process, however it is that you attract talent. I think that's just a really brilliant insight, especially with a shortage of fundraising professionals that's happening right now. I have literally had conversations with people who've had vacant positions for nine months, 12 months, and they have said to me, I'm gonna hire the next person who sits in that interview chair. And I'm like, no, no. It's like picking a husband. You kind of want to get the right one or a spouse. <laughs> so, yeah, that clarity. And then the discipline. Like our mission is worth it. Our work is worth it. And finding someone just to fill a spot will right. slow us down. And if you can't find somebody, what the market is telling you is that either you have invented a job that should not exist or the way you talk about the job 
is incorrect. This isn't the fault of the person who isn't working for you. This is about what culture did you build? You know, when I was building Yoyodan, one of the first internet companies, it was a struggle to get people to work for me because no one knew what the internet was and we were located outside of New York City. And I was in a meeting with the head of Disney's online services. And on his desk was a pile, I'm not exaggerating, this thick, 70, 80 pages long. I said, what's that? He said, oh, those are the resumes that came in yesterday. Yesterday. And wow. it was obvious, and I was proven correct, that working for me was safer than working for Disney's online division because they fired everybody repeatedly because they had so much tumult, whereas my organization ended up really thriving. The story we told to get the people we needed wasn't as good as Disney's ability to tell a story about what it was like to work at Disney. And is it fair? No, it's not fair. Those people would have been better off working for me, but it was true. And so given that it's true, how are you going to show up in the marketplace with a story that resonates with the people you want to tell it to so that they will join your team? You're going to have to change some of your requirements if you want to build the vibrant team you're imagining. And be more flexible. I mean, mm -hmm. we know that young professionals today want to recreate and they want four-day work weeks or flex time or working remotely or hybrid. And we have to be open to co-creating a productive, empowering culture that really meets everyone's need. And yeah. it's going to take, to your earlier point, some trial and error. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Seth, talk to us about the intersection of trust and essential work. So when we think about how we engage with the marketplace, there are some projects where we have very high stakes. If you're going in to have a pacemaker installed, the stakes are really high. You don't want someone experimenting. On the other hand, if you go to a brand new restaurant around the corner for lunch and it's terrible, your costs are very low. You can go next door and get a sandwich later. So when the stakes are high, we have to think about what level of trust is required and where does the trust come from? So there are certain things where we want there to be surveillance, where we want everything to be measured at every level, right? And so when you think about buying a new car, you're probably buying it from an established company that has a reputation for high levels of quality, which all comes from surveillance. Every step is surveilled. That doesn't mean that's a good place to work on that assembly line, but it means that the customer needs that. And then there are other things we need in our life where if it doesn't work out, we can move on, like going to buy a coffee in the morning. So we don't need to surveil every step along the way of how that barista does their craft. But we can earn trust as we engage over time because that person comes to see us and we understand each other. Mm -hmm. So in the book, I have a simple grid of surveillance and trust of the stakes that are involved. And what we have to realize is that computers are way better than we are at surveillance, are way better than we are at delivering the same thing every time. So if that's the business you want to be in, don't be surprised if a computer can race to the bottom faster than you. And so, you know, you mentioned regulated nonprofits. Some of the things that we've built in our society that should be done by a centralized, organized governing authority 
we sort of said, no, we'll just let a nonprofit do it. People working very hard every single day to do the same thing over and over again. And I'm not sure that's a good idea, but it's the way it is. And then there are other nonprofits that live in the liminal space between here and there, trying to invent a way forward. And we should be really clear about which kind we are. And it can mix. So like if you're running a Meals on Wheels, you better show up for that hungry elderly person. But at the same time, you have way more flexibility than you think to what's on the menu. You have way more flexibility than you think about how you raise money for that. So some of the things are tight. They have to meet spec every time. And other things are loose where we can bring actual humanity and innovation to the table. Mm. So it really goes back to clarity and understanding your organization. Where is it that we must focus on compliance? And where is it that we can be innovative, that we can go above and beyond? So important. And it's interesting because I have found very few C-suite folks who have a brain that can live in both worlds. And so, of course, I think that points to the power of team, but I'm interested in how you've seen teams come together, given the juxtaposition of those interests. Yeah. So back to the culture idea. I had a credit card that I used for my company for more than 20 years. So when you do the math, given that hundreds of people have worked for me over years, that's millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And they let me down a couple of times in a row. So I just switched to a different credit card. I didn't cancel the other one. I just switched. So no one there noticed that I had made a decision that cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars. Whereas if we're talking about a call center where there's surveillance and some poor, overworked, disrespected person makes a mistake and they get flagged and get fired, why is that more urgent than this other mistake that their corporate policy cost them a hundred times as much money? Well, the question is the culture. The question is, are you on high alert for messing up the things where compliance is really important? Or are you on high alert for messing up the things where opportunities lost are really expensive? And if you as the CEO develop a reputation for freaking out when something is one minute late, but not even noticing when a potential donor isn't treated in a way that would, could turn them into a lifelong contributor, well, then that's what you're going to get. And so as we build a team, we have to think about what are we rewarding? What are we highlighting? What things are we keeping track of? Because that's what we're going to get. Yeah. And when we think about remote work, a lot of traditionalists, don't like it because they like just taking attendance. But what remote work also does is it provides us the opportunity to announce with clarity what's important and then trust people to deliver what we said was important on their own terms. And a lot of folks can't handle that because they like to be a manager with authority as opposed to a leader who's creating opportunity. So how do we take someone who likes to manage and introduce them to leadership? How do you grow someone into their leadership and predictably in the shortest amount of time? Well, I love this question. Leadership and management are really unrelated. They're as related as 
brownies and tofu. They, they, they're not the same thing. Leadership is voluntary. Leadership is not related to authority at all. It's simply showing up to do something that might not work and inviting people along. Management is important. It is compliance. It is using authority to get other people to do what you want. But we keep conflating the two, which causes all this tension. Many managers are not leaders. They're simply managers. And perhaps we could just applaud that. If you're managing a fast food restaurant, get the people to their shift on time. Make sure they meet spec and get payroll handled. You're managing. Where we run into trouble is when a manager thinks they have the right to be a leader or when they don't know that leadership is voluntary. So they try to use their authority to get people to follow them. But if they're following you because you're using your authority, then you're not leading, you're managing. And so we need to name it and then we need to practice it. Practice it in the small. Not call a big company meeting and say to 50 people, I'm a leader now, but figure <laughs> out if you can get just one person to change just one approach, not because you told them to, but because you opened the door to help them get to where they wanted to go. And it's a huge chasm, and I don't have a shortcut for it. It's simply a choice. Yeah. Yeah. So good, though. I mean, it's so good to distinguish manager versus leader in that way. Thank you. All right. Last question for you, although I would love to talk with you all day long. <laughs> what is Kokoro, and why is it important? in our work, and in our lives for that matter. So I don't know why, but I'm transfixed by certain Japanese terms like wabi-sabi, like otaku, and now kokoro. And the ideogram for it is the ideogram for a heart. And what we are talking about is this. When chat GPT lets you down, it doesn't care. When we engage with the machine, and it creates something that doesn't really work for us, it doesn't care. And after 20 or 30 or 40 years of indoctrination, it's easy for a worker to feel the same way. Hmm. They don't pay me enough to care is a really horrible but common expression. For me, Kokoro is the desire to care. Human beings, I've never met one who doesn't seek significance. The significance of being able to care about your work. And too often in fundraising, what we do is we throw people at the problem and they get shredded by the emotional challenge of it. Instead of giving them the support and the foundation they need to continue to care, to find a way forward so they're not just dialing for dollars and begging for pennies, but are actually building an environment, a connection, a community of people who are glad to be there and want to do it again. And if we can help people find heart, not just the heart that goes with our core mission, but the heart in just the act of fundraising or being a donor, then we get the resilience to do it again. And, you know, I miss my parents every day, but I can tell you that neither was a professional in the fundraising world, but both of them will tell you that it was among the highlights of their lives because they found significance in doing it. They weren't just sitting there saying, how can I lift another $500 out of someone's pocket? 
they were saying, how can I create meaning and leave something behind that's a little better than I found it? Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. Seth, this has been an honor and truly a delight for me and surely incredibly meaningful for our listeners. Thank you. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And I'm looking forward to our next conversation, Tammy. As am I. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Seth Godin, follow him on social or pre-order The Song of Significance, a new manifesto for teams. We've included links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now for a final word from our sponsor. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. If you'd like to learn more about how Bloomerang can help your nonprofit acquire, retain, and engage donors, or learn how First Tea of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds in the first year with Bloomerang, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a Fundraising Transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransformed.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of $27.1 As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.